welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you join us here today. I do have a little favor to ask of you, and that's that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. By doing that, it uh, helps other people find us, and it motivates us to keep producing great content for you. So if you haven't already written us a review, and you are able to write us more than one if you want to, you just need to go to Apple Podcast app, search Grow My Salon Business, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and reviews, and write us a review. It'll only take you a couple of minutes, and we really would be very appreciative. Okay, so let's get on with today's show. No matter where in the world you live, the last 12 months have been a challenging time to be in business. And the bigger your business, the bigger the overhead, and the bigger the responsibility that goes with it. But it's also at times like this, when people and businesses are stretched to the max, that the years of good business management practices, good financial management and leadership will help to get you through. My guest on today's podcast is Candy Shaw, who along with her family has built a great business that stretches from salon to school and product manufacturer. Candy wears many hats in the industry and she's inspired and continues to inspire hairdressers everywhere. Her salon is the Jamison Shaw Salon in Atlanta, Georgia, which was started by her father, Jamison Shaw, and is now a third generation business, which has not just survived the last 60 years, but it's continued to grow and evolve and pivot throughout the years. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss salon productivity levels, running a salon during COVID, what it takes to start a product company, balancing family and business life, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Candy Shaw. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Candy, it's really great to have you here. I've been really looking forward to uh, uh, having a chat to you today on the podcast. I know you've got a wealth of experience and uh, uh, an amazing background and lots of knowledge to share with our audience, no matter uh, where they are in the world. So um, let's just start off with um, an overview of who you are. Let's start off with an overview of your background. You know, Who is Candy Shaw? And, and perhaps talk about, to start with, who is Candy Shaw in the personal overview, and then we'll segue after that into uh, Candy Shaw, the hairdresser, and Candy Shaw, the business person. Well, thank you. Candy Shaw, the personal person, is a wife of 32 years, a mother of three, a now newly grandmother, and uh, a lover of learning. That's wow, who I am. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. And um, how many of the the three, mother of three, how many of them work in the business? Uh, only one. My oldest son runs my business, Sunlight's Balayage, and also uh, is the director of smiles at our salon, Jamison Shaw Hairdressers, here in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. I love the title. You know, uh, Americans are so good at that. <laughs> director of smiles. And uh, there was another one I heard that you use for your uh, your general manager, you call them director of first impressions or director of reputations. Yeah. Or I, I think yeah. those sort of uh, uh, titles are, are fantastic. They change people's perception of what their job is. And I dare say it changes the perception of how other team members maybe relate to them. I would have to agree. I've always been one that uh, sort of hated titles, if you will. When someone gives you a business card and they are the CFO, the COO, the CEO, the you know all these yeah. various uh, titles, the manager, the founder, the creator. I mean, it, it's a lot, you know. So for us, we we try to play on words and just do things that make it memorable. Yeah, well, it certainly is. Okay, so I know uh, from what I was reading that your husband's also involved in the business. Am I am I right in saying that? He is. My husband uh, is a attorney by trade, so it's yeah. really wonderful to have in-house counsel uh, for our businesses. But uh, he left the law 
technically, not the law in general, but the law technically uh, about 15 years ago. And the three of us, my son, my husband and I run our companies. Fantastic. Okay. And how do you, how do you deal with that at a, you know, at a personal level? Do you have sort of rules around work time and family time and you all together? Um, or or is, is it sort of always work time? Well, it's really interesting you ask that because for me, I grew up doing that. My mother and my father ran our salon. My mother did all the numbers, the payroll, the human resources. My father did all things creative, you know, hiring, training, uh, marketing, so on and so on. And then I, of course, came through the ranks as well. So it was a three-legged stool back then. Yeah. I learned a lot about watching my parents navigate together as a couple. And once I married my husband, it was really just the natural instinct just to go in that direction. So there are a lot of things that my husband can do that I can't and I can do that they can't. And we just sort of know our territories. Uh, and can I say that there's not been some challenging times? Of course, we're family. <laughs> but uh, the reality is uh, each of us knows uh, what is uh, our our duty, sort of job description, if you will, and we sort of stay in our lane. Yeah, and that's great when you've got a family to do that because if you can't trust your family, who can you trust? Um, and when you identify all your different skills and stuff, it's a great it's a great formula for success if you can, you know, work that way. Um, I mean, I work with my wife as well, but we we try and really, um, you know, we try and turn off when uh, when we're not working. Uh, and I admit, yes, sometimes it's hard uh, when you work together and live together at the same time. But uh, you know, the upside, um, you know, outweighs the the uh, the downside, so to speak. Well, can, can I ask you this question? A bit left to field. What do you do when you're not doing here? Well, I don't know a life without hair, to be honest, but I guess uh, if I were to answer that in a very quick, easy way is I love to spend time with my friends. I love to entertain. Uh, we have a, a small place in Florida that we go and visit and spend some time on the beach there as well. But mostly if I have any additional hours in the day, um, I'm either uh, wanting to spend it with my granddaughter or just really uh, enjoying just some time away from everything uh, digital. You know, we spend so much time on the digital, uh, the digital formats right now. For me, it's just really quiet time. Yeah. Yeah, good. I've just been uh, experimenting with uh, Clubhouse. Uh, I don't know if you've been on it yet, but it's it's incredible. Um, you know, as a new social media app, I think it's going to revolutionize a lot of things, um, especially in the education sphere. It's, it's sort of like what we're doing now. It's like a it's like a podcast, but with dozens of people on it, and uh, it's it's incredible. Have you had a play with that yet? I actually am aware of it. I haven't had an opportunity to really do my research or, or to navigate through. I know that I have a lot of uh, educators that work uh, on behalf of Sunlight's Balayage that are already utilizing it. So it's definitely on my short list. Yeah, well, it's very addictive. So I'm warning you, it's very addictive, but very good at the same time. So anyway, okay, let's uh, let's get going. We're talking about Candy Shaw, the hairdresser. So uh, you alluded to the fact you grew up in the salon. I think most people um, in the industry, certainly in the United States, would have been aware of who your father was or who your father is. Um, I know he's still with us, but he's you know no longer working from what I gather. But um, his name, Jamison Shaw, you know, famous hairdresser, uh, for many years there with a, you know, a big international profile. So, you know, you, you grew up around, uh, around here for sure, you know, ate, slept and eat, slept and breathed it, so to speak. So tell us what that was like for you as a, as a young girl growing up in a, in a, a household where hairdressing was something that was always there and always spoken about. I mean, it must have had a huge influence on you from day one. You know, honestly, at the time, I didn't realize what the influence was. was. Um, my life was filled with some of the greatest iconic hairdressers of all time. Um, my parents' home was always filled with anyone and everyone that you could pretty much name back in those days. Uh, but growing up in it, it just was natural. Uh, we lived about one mile from my father's salon as a child. And when I would come home from school, the very first thing I would do is jump on my bicycle and ride over to the salon as quickly as possible so that I could, uh, you know, 
sweep the floor, fold the towels or do anything and everything hair. I started cutting hair in the seventh grade and trade for math homework because I was dyslexic and I couldn't really do this, the studies. So I figured out very quickly that the only way that I could uh, kind of uh, strong arm myself through school was to ask other people to help me. And the way that I could get their help was I went to a school that had a hair code. And so I cut folks hair and the locker room and trade for homework so that they could help me get through my studies. When I graduated school, I never went to beauty school because in Georgia, you don't have to, you can actually apprentice. I quickly went over to Europe for uh, about six months and studied with some great French hairdressers and then came back. And my career has been one direct path from the moment I um, stepped you know, stepped out of high school and really into the hair world. And it's been an amazing journey. Yeah, that's interesting that you uh, in Georgia that you can still do apprenticeships because um, I know that there's very few places in the United States where you still can do an apprenticeship, isn't there? Is it still that way that you can apprentice people in Georgia? Yes, and as a matter of fact, um, you know, we we go in ebbs and flows with it here in Georgia. And since COVID, Obviously, a lot of folks have left the industry, retired from the industry. Um, you know, the beauty school uh, industry has suffered a lot with enrollment. And so I've got a really big push this year to start back to actually um, really revamp and, and ramp up our apprenticeship program. We, we typically hire people out of beauty school, of course, and we certainly have had people that go through our protege program. But I think that now we're all shifting our businesses to uh, do different things. And one of which I feel is going to be a strength for us here in Georgia is that we can actually, uh, you know, someone can work, get paid and learn at the same time. And so it's definitely going to be a focus for me in 2021. Yeah. Okay. Why is it? I've often wondered when I go to Atlanta, um, I think I've been there two or three times now. And there is a noticeably different hairdressing culture in Atlanta to other American cities. I know you have, you know, obviously, you know, your uh, salon uh, there as a, as a, you know, a brand name of hairdressing that's known by, by many, many people. Um, and then you also have uh, Van Michael salons there and you have, you have more than that. There's several salon groups or high profile hairdressers there that still have, when I say still, that have the commission based um, salon model. Whereas when you're in a lot of other uh, U.S. cities, I mean, particularly on the West Coast, but not just there, there, there is a big shift towards more um, independent contractors. Um, uh, wh- wh- what is it that accounts for that? Why is Georgia or why is Atlanta in particular uh, different as far as that goes? Well, I'm going to answer this in two parts. Uh, the first part is why is the culture different? And the answer to that is the forefathers that came through Georgia were my father and my uncle. And part of what they did back in the days was create these incredible educational programs. Van is a very dear friend of mine. Talk to him constantly. Um, We have all had wonderful relationships in this city uh, through Intercoiffure has also kept us very close. But several years ago, I started an organization called the Atlanta Salon Owners Organization, where I felt like, you know, if we can't beat them, join them, that really our competitors were also people who we could be, you know, we're stronger in numbers. And so I put together this program of Atlanta salon owners where we actually would meet uh, uh, two to three, maybe even four times a year and talk about best business practices. Now, what, why that relates to why are we commissioned versus uh, independent Uh, contractors is that all of us that meet together are very strong and large salon um, uh, operations. Uh, For instance, my salon is 5,000 square feet and 50 chairs. And so when you're in a large type of way, you have to create these strategies to have an incredible training. And we've just been known for that. People move to Atlanta. It's a wonderful hub that uh, a lot of places, you know, a big city concept where they want to come and learn. 
And that doubled down with the uh, apprenticeship programs really makes it very inviting to stay into that culture. I would also say that, um, you know, the South is just a different breed altogether. Uh, Yes, there is a lot of independent uh, booth renting type of situations growing. But when you create incredible team environments uh, that have great culture for helping each other, not only learn, grow, prosper, and uh, become the best at your craft, I think that it's just something that is uh, that folks are finding that security is a wonderful thing to have. For instance, Van has a very different type of learning program. Um, which is, he's one mile away from my salon. Um, I'm a French-based balayage uh, highlighting type of salon where Van is more of a, you know, Vidal Sassoon, uh, British type of hairdressing type of community as well. So we both have very different businesses, but we have very similar business practices. Yeah, that are essentially uh, built around the the employee-employer uh, business model, Correct. which is, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and do you see that? Is, is that evolving much? You know, I mean, it is always evolving. It is always changing, but um, you know, how is it evolving in uh, Atlanta and Georgia? What are you doing differently in terms of that business model today than maybe what you were 10 years ago? Well, I think 10 years ago would be a stretch. I think one year ago would be more okay. of a way yeah. to answer that. And the reason I say that is because we've all been faced with with COVID and we're all shifting and, uh, you know, pivoting our businesses in a different way. Uh, I would be uh, completely uh, uh, remiffed if I didn't say that, you know, certainly our business models are changing with the influx of entrepreneurship and people wanting to go out on their own. But in that same vein, um, you know, I said it before when COVID happened, you know, everyone who wants to be on their own or a salon owner or, you know, by themselves uh, that don't want leadership. And, and, you know, I kind of I kind of had to giggle because I said they don't want that leadership until they need it. And, you know, the shift in business has changed and we're finding that a lot of people you know, might um, choose to go out on their own. But we're also seeing a lot of folks who are saying, you know, it's it's greater to work for a company who has that security, uh, has the ability as a large company to protect and take care of uh, their staff members in a way that they never really saw before. And COVID certainly brought that, um, you know, up in all of our businesses. And now they're seeing the safety in that as well as, again, uh, uh, a cushion, if you will, of uh, protection. Mm. And are you seeing the same, you know, thing with clients? Because it's interesting. I, I talk to some people and they say exactly what you've just said, but then I'll talk to other people and they'll say that that, that both clients and hairdressers, and I'm sure both of these things are happening, uh, that there's a perception that the salon suite model is safer because you're not in a in a room with you know twenty other people, you're in a room with one other person, and um, it's easier for them to to keep the you know sanitation standards up, etc. If it is just one person, one client in a salon at a time, um, uh, but but what you're saying is sort of the opposite of that is that there's more security for people by being part of a big organisation as a staff member that they feel better protected and and they are indeed uh, you know better protected you know by various government programs, etc. Well, I would say that um, that's a one-two punch. I mean, number one, every one of our staff members was paid throughout the entire closure that we had, um, which, you know, that in itself, uh, we were able to get PPP and we were able to do a lot of incredible things through uh, retailing uh, while we were closed, which you wouldn't have been able to do. As far as safety goes, we've been open since um, we were only closed for 55 days and we were uh, we opened on May the 9th. And um, here we are in March, which is almost a year since we closed from our original date on March 19. And we've only had two instances of COVID. Both uh, were know exactly where they came from, and none of them were from clients. Uh, so I think the mask is really more the, the the situation. I mean, our protocols of safety and, and sanitation are unprecedented. 
Uh, so I don't really buy into that one room, one person mentality, because I think yeah. the ultimately at the end, it's it's more about working together as a team to uh, get to a common a common place. Yeah. And when you say you've only had two cases of COVID, you mean in the salon, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Okay. And we've so, we've serviced thousands and thousands and thousands of people since we've reopened, and right. those were two employees, and both of them uh, were isolated cases that we knew exactly where they came from, and they didn't come from a client. Yeah. Um, and so, when you think about that in numbers, uh, it's pretty remarkable. That is a, that is remarkable. I want to come back to uh, to COVID uh, later on in our conversation, but I I wanted to. Uh, pick back up on something that that you mentioned a few minutes ago, where you said that you trained in France, um, and I'm thinking about the fact that you know you, you, your your dad was this you know very high profile hairdresser um, in in not just in the United States but internationally as well. Um, so what was it that made you decide I need to go to France to learn hair as opposed to you know learn from your dad in his salon? Well, all my life, um, I was lucky enough to travel and to uh, see parts of the world. And French cutting was something that I always admired. And my father always admired through Jacques Dessange and Jean-Louis Davie. Uh, one of my dad's, uh, someone he always admired through my life was Alexandre Paris and the Carita sisters. And when my father won the... Um, uh, the world championships in Amsterdam back in uh, back in the '60s for the Marcel Iron. It just was a place that always felt, you know, welcoming to him. When he uh, you know, used to compete, he was a competition hairdresser, so he used to compete against all the Europeans. And I don't know, there was just something that always uh, uh, appealed to me: uh, the commercial uh, beauty of a woman and the way that. The hair was there. Uh, no offense to, you know, Britain, because Britain had a very different flavor, you know, of how they were doing hair. Um, it just always appealed to me. And I had an opportunity. I was actually dating a, a boy at the time. And I had an opportunity to uh, go over there. And my dad had these relationships and I just took advantage of them. Great. So did you, you work there or you went to school there or a bit of both? I really mostly shadowed uh, other people there. I didn't actually, quote unquote, go to school there. I actually did my French training school here in America um, at Jacques Dessange when they were on uh, Park Avenue. Uh, so I did a lot of that, you know, there and shadowing and, and watching, but mostly my training came um, uh, afterwards in America. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, you mentioned the Carita sisters. Did you ever meet them? When I was very young, I went to a show uh, at the uh, circus in Paris where I witnessed, uh, you know, many of those uh, uh, incredible masters and iconic hairdressers at the time. Personally, me, I never met them. Right. But, you know, I was, you know, around those types of people. I mean, um, you know, I like to think that I was exposed to some of the greats of of this industry, uh, even if it was just being in the same room with them. Uh, I always felt like there was always a connection. And, you know, back then there was no cell phones and texting and yeah. emailing and Internet and social media. Um, and you built relationships on simply volunteering. Um, that's one of the things that I did in my career so much uh, through Interpofura is my father would always throw me backstage and just say, you know, go help, you know, hold the pens, you know, hold the hairspray, do anything you can to volunteer. That's how you learn. Yeah. And again, since I didn't go to beauty college or even college in general, uh, you know, everything that I ever had to learn was just by true grit. Yeah. Well, that'll take you a long way. So, no, I was curious about the, the Carita sisters with their, I mean, as far as I understand, they are the original sort of originators of the balayage technique. Uh, have I got it mm -hmm. right on that? I, I mean, you. I, I would have to say that absolutely. Yeah, I would say absolutely they are. Um, but that's not where I got my training. Yeah. Um, you know, my French cutting training also, uh, I loved, you know, watching Bruno Patini and, 
and a lot of others, but um, they were probably, I would agree, the originators. Yeah. Now, one of the things I was doing a bit of research on you before we, we got on the podcast, and I read some some numbers about your personal productivity uh, behind the chair. And they're numbers that make most people rock back on their feet, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like one of the numbers was that you, you do frequently, you do three clients every 30 minutes. Um, is that, mm-hmm. is that right? That's not misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, 36 clients well, in a day. I hear that you, you know, knock over those sort of numbers. Talk to us about that. How do you, how do you do that? I know you've got a lot of experience and stuff, but, uh, um, you know, I often find that when I talk to young hairdressers today, they have this fixation in their head of like, you've got to have one hour appointments. You can't do a haircut properly in less than one hour from beginning to end. And of course, you know, we both know that that you can. And so, you know, I love sort of highlighting the sort of productivity levels that some people manage to achieve and still do very sophisticated work that they charge seriously, you know, good money for like yourself. So um, I'd love to hear you talk to that for a bit. Well, first and foremost, I want to say to your viewers out there or your listeners out there that I still work behind the chair. I just celebrated my 57th birthday last week, and I still love what I do uh, behind the chair. And I say that because it is, it is the place that I, you know, all things are possible for me. And what I mean by that is in order to be an educator or in order to have a product line or order to do these things, I feel that it's necessary for me to continue to always work on my craft. And I think what you're alluding to is when I turned 50, I had a goal for myself. And my goal was I wanted to hit $500,000 behind the chair, $50,000 in retail for my 50th year. And that was just my ultimate goal to hit. And I love to say that I hit it by one highlight. And, you know, I I really literally hit it by one highlight. But I also want to say to your viewers uh, that my haircut price at the time was $89. So a lot of folks like to think, oh, well, you must have been charging, you know, $250 for a haircut or $300 for a haircut. No, I did it on an $89 haircut and a $109 highlight. And the reason I c- could do that at the time was because what you alluded to earlier, and that is that I'm an education-based salon. And so when you can train protégés and apprentices, the greatest thing gift that you can give them is to show them how to get in the trenches and how to create disciplines of working as a team, but more importantly, working smarter, not harder. So French haircutting, which is a very fast, foolproof technique that allows me to cut hair very quickly, and balayage, which again, uh, cuts down, cuts your time in half uh, or even in thirds from a foiling conventional technique, has allowed me to double down on my numbers. Uh, Again, I said that I have a 50 chair salon. So at any given moment, I will have six or eight chairs running at one time um, for my guests. So I would book three clients every 30 minutes. Uh, Of course, now with COVID, you know, I'm not doing that. Obviously, we are following the protocols of, of time, duration of time in the salon and the social distancing aspect. But more importantly, um, you know, it allows me to work with a team of, you know, three to four uh, people at a time, meaning assistant help or protege help. And so therefore, I could hit those numbers. I like to think now I'm sort of semi-retired. And that would be that, you know, now I would do, you know, 15 to maybe 18 guests in a day, um, you know, pre-COVID, obviously. And uh, that's kind of my sweet spot now. But in my own salon, the goal is to train the stylist to be able to build their business at the greatest capacity, still keeping in keeping with the level of quality that we want uh, for the workmanship. and. You know, that is comes through training. So even uh, one of my my top six figure hairdresser last year was a 26 year old girl that did upwards in about $400,000 behind the chair, 
working only with one assistant. Um, she did that on a $70 haircut and a $140 highlight. And so, you know, it's, it's all a math equation, to be honest. You know, um, I went into the business to be successful. And I would say to your listeners out there, if you're a hairdresser, you know, you want to maximize your time. Um, because everyone out there doesn't want to work more hours. You know, everyone wants to work less and make more. You know, uh, so if I can teach someone how to run their business and streamline their business accordingly, uh, then ultimately they're going to work smarter, not harder, have a more successful career, but also uh, run a very efficient business. Mm. Okay. Now, I know that you you took over uh, your dad's uh, business. Um, was his sort of working culture the same as what yours was? I mean, when you talk about, you know, the French haircutting style, was he, uh, or, or, and, and the British haircutting style, was he already, you know, uh, emulating that sort of, you know, work um, style that, that you had embraced? Or, or was it something that you had to sort of integrate into the way the salon ran already? No, actually, my father was the 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 godfather of of uh, this business. As a matter of fact, I kind of uh, giggled, you know, when you said thirty six because the most uh, my father did in a day was forty six. Um, but that was, of course, <laughs> back in the day when yeah. you would have shampoos and sets, and you yeah. would roll the women's hair and put them under the dryer and brush them out. Um, but now I want to make sure that people don't think that we uh, uh, would any in any way uh, compromise uh, quantity over quality. You know, yeah. we want to have a quality business. And when you come to our salon, you will see the quality and the effectiveness. But maybe a great analogy to think of would be a chef in the kitchen. You know, the chef doesn't cook everything. You know, you have a sous chef, you have a pastry chef, you have a waiter, you have a, a busboy, you have a hostess. Uh, you have someone who cleans the dishes. You have all those people. And if you set up a strategy to to have a great business model like that, then all things are possible. I mean, there's no way in the world we could do these kinds of numbers without the help and the and the uh, uh, the roadmap to do it. And so how we train folks is, you know, whatever you're there, the best at at that moment, that's what they focus on. And then collectively, uh, we give the finished product. Okay. So I know that you you said that your sweet spot now is somewhere between 15 and 18 odd clients a day, um, which, you know, I can get my head around that. I've, I've, I used to work to those sort of numbers. I certainly couldn't do 38, um, but I totally, uh, or 36, whatever the number was, I totally take my hat off to you and respect anyone who, who, uh, who can do that. Um, what I was going to ask you about was what, what would the average person in your salon do? I mean, I know you also mentioned a young lady a minute ago who'd, who'd hit uh, 400,000. Uh, but w- what would you say a good stylist is doing in your salon in terms of client count um, per day? Well, someone at that level uh, that's working with one assistant, um, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 15 a day. Okay. Um, as someone working without an assistant, because of French cutting being fast, they are going to book on a 30 minute interval, uh, their balayage, they're going to book in a, an hour interval. So they're going to do an hour and a half for a balayage and a haircut. Um, there, obviously you can do the math on that. If you work an eight hour day, what does that look like? So I would say eight to 10 guests based on, um, you know, if they're doing mostly haircuts or also colors, uh, I, one process color is booked on a 30 minute interval, uh, you know, so, and of course, if someone needs more time, we of course book them when they're newer to the floor, they may take a 45 minute haircut and they may take an hour and a half highlight. So the goal is, is to just be faster and more efficient. Um, yeah. you know, so it, it really depends on the person and, and what's in their wheelhouse, you know, what they feel comfortable. However, in, in keeping with that, we also have help. And what I mean by that is there's two things I think you can give a stylist that they want more than anything. Uh, one is time off when they want it. 
you know, let's face it, that is something that's very important for someone to have the time off uh, to keep the balance in their life. And the other is help when they need it. So say, for instance, a stylist works in my salon and she or he is uh, doesn't work with a dedicated assistant. In a, in a moment when they got behind or a moment when they wanted to upsell or upgrade a service and maybe, you know, provide uh, a conditioning treatment or a glaze or a toner or uh, a boliage or something like that, in addition to what they were previously booked for, we now have the ability with floaters in our salon to help them out. So that is another reason why um, I feel like staying in that team environment is so wonderful Because not only are you maybe running your chair on your own, it's sort of your own business within your, you know, the umbrella of Jamison Shaw. It also provides you the uh, abilities to reach out to others when you do get behind so that we can work as a team to get you caught back up. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to ask you about your your nickname, for want of a better word. I don't know if that is the right phrase, uh, but you're often referred to in the media and elsewhere as the Balai Lama. Um, where did that come from? It actually came from a student. Uh, I've been in the classroom for over 25 years in my academy in Atlanta, Georgia, either teaching uh, French cutting in the beginning. I, I sort of Americanized uh, its curriculum and put together a curriculum for that. And then when I began to really start to develop uh, my curriculum for balayage. A student used to always, uh, you know, sort of my students would refer to me as the Bali Lama, sort of like the Dalai Lama. Uh, I'm known for sort of being um, a really big coach and mentor. Uh, I post a lot of positive things on my social media, positive quotes. Um, I'm all about punching positivity and thinking about the glasses half full and not half empty. So it just kind of rolled with it. And when balayage at the time was really uh, very new to this industry, uh, it just sort of stuck. I put it out there as my Instagram handle, really not even knowing what it would be like. And now, you know, if I'm not called the Bali Lama, I'll be called the Bali Mama. So that's just kind of the nickname that's been stuck with me, I guess. Well, it's uh, it's not a bad handle to have, so um, you could do a lot worse. Um, okay, so you, you've sort of alluded to, we touched on before we talked about COVID. Um, first of all, how have you dealt with that on a personal level? Have you been okay, you and your family? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, we've been really remarkably okay. Um, you know, people are getting their vaccinations now. I really feel like there's a light at this end of the tunnel. Our yeah. business is growing uh, every week exponentially, which really gives uh, gives me great hope uh, that things are beginning to come back. Most businesses, like everywhere, were down, you know, just based on how many closures and how many days you had to be closed. But we really are seeing um, uh, quite a bit of, uh, influx with pre-booking and people coming back into our business and pers- on a personal level. It's no fun to work in a mask, but it's just something that we are all getting accustomed to. And it's really changed the way I do business now um, forever. What are some of the changes that you made and maybe have continued to make uh, to, to, to the client experience and how you do business uh, because of COVID? What, what are some of the, you know, the practical things that if someone's listening to this and they're still closed and they're thinking, well, what are we going to do when we reopen? What are the things that you found have been really successful or maybe things that you've done and tried and thought, actually, that was a mistake? Well, probably three years ago, our business went cashless. And that was a really big uh, positive for us. So when COVID happened, being contactless and having a contactless check checkout uh, experience has been probably the greatest thing that ever happened. I mean, number one, it cuts down on the amount of people that you need uh, to do transactions at the front desk. If you can imagine if your uh, salon services anywhere from 150 to 250 clients in a day, you know, you're cutting down on the amount of people who are having to stop by your front and, uh, you know, obviously check out and those types of things, which have been amazing. Having all that information on file 
uh, has been uh, wonderful. We've also integrated where people wait in their cars. And that's been something that I think has been really nice, just not having people come in with visitors and, you know, dogs and children and everything in between, you know, so yeah, yeah. Uh, minimizing the amount of people in the salon has been wonderful. The retail experience has been um, really, really so much better. We, uh, you know, we used to always rely on maybe putting a product at the front and stylists are absolutely so, uh, so guilty, I guess, is the word I want to use for just placing a product at the front, front, along with the ticket from the charges of the day and sort of running and hiding and hoping that the front desk coordinator or the guest coordinator is going to close the sale. And one thing that we've done is we brought the retail experience back to the chair meaning it's happening in process. So while uh, a guest is getting their hair done, we're actually booking and pre-booking their next visit at the chair. We're also filling and talking about that retail component and filling the order, so to speak, at the chair. So that when she gets up and is finished, she can literally walk out the door. What it's done is it's really forced that hand back on the stylist to have the responsibility and the accountability for the discussion of home use. And uh, that's really helped an uptick in our retail sales to combat Amazon and to combat all the other ways that they're, you know, people are actually uh, purchasing product now. I think another wonderful experience uh, that we've had is just quieting down the shampoo experience. I think a lot of times we've been guilty of bringing a guest back to, we call it the shampoo bowl. I think you call it maybe the basin. And they come back and we're talking over them and we're shampooing and we're talking around them. Now we are covering the faces of all of our guests, which makes it a much quieter and a more enjoyable experience. So those are a few of the many ways that we are changing our business that I don't think will ever go back to uh, pre-COVID ways. Yeah. Well, I I actually remember reading, um, you know, two or three years ago, whenever it was in in one of the trade magazines, um, it was a comment that I believe it was your son that was making saying that you had gone cashless as a salon. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think we all know that the world's been heading in that direction, but it was a really brave move to sort of say, no, we're cashless. If someone, you know, gets a hundred dollar bill out of their, out of their purse, it's like, no, sorry, we're cashless. We can't, we can't take that. So, uh, yeah, I suppose at the time, a lot of people, you know, maybe thought that, that you were crazy doing that, but certainly with COVID it's paid off without a doubt. Um, well, we that- also have an ATM machine, which people thought we were crazy about as well, which I'm yeah. not sure what you call it, but it's just, you know, a money machine, oh, yeah, no, if you will. ATM machine. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that has been amazing. And yes, I do have to credit my son for having the guts uh, to just sort of push me in that direction. And I think probably, I know that it's different in different communities as far as whether you uh, accept gratuities or you don't accept gratuities. But my staff originally uh, thought, oh my gosh, you know, our gratuities will go down when we become cashless. Yeah. Uh, and also, we were not allowing uh, even on credit cards to for someone to add additional gratuity uh, because of the credit card debt that it causes our business at 3% to pay for the credit card charges and transaction fees. And at the time, everyone thought, oh, my gosh, you know, our, our gratuities will go down. But actually, they went up. Because now if someone would write a check at the time, um, you know, they would round up. And more importantly, with uh, Cash App and Venmo and other different types of um, uh, digital money platforms, you know, it's just you're not going to just add, you know, seven dollars. You're going to go, okay, ten dollars or twenty dollars. It's just a lot easier to round up. So they have found that their gratuities actually increased. Well, okay. Um, I I heard, and I I hope you don't mind me repeating this. I'm sure you don't. You said you didn't mind at the beginning. Um, I heard that your first client, when you reopened after COVID, gave you a rather large tip. 
That is so true. My first client uh, wrote me a check for a thousand dollars and gave it to my staff, really, just to say, wow. d- distribute it how you feel uh, you sh- wanted uh, a reward and award, or use it however you feel uh, necessary. And yeah. quite frankly, it was one of many big uh, gratuities that I received from the beginning. It was not unusual uh, in the first. Um, round of guests that people were giving me 200 300 400 dollars uh to, to help my our business and i found that it was uh it, it was in many cases it wasn't just me salon owner it was also to our staff members and we also found that you know stylists were receiving gifts from guests during closure they were yeah. actually sending checks in the mail or, or Venmoing money uh, to them, you know, to help them with their own uh, rent and their own debt. So it was really remarkable that yeah. uh, people cared so much for our business. And quite frankly, it's what helped us sustain. Yeah, that's fantastic. Did you, when you were closed, did you actively, um, I mean, did you have a retail component to your website? Were you able to capitalize on retail sales during that close time? We were. And I'm so glad you asked this question because there was a huge controversy in America on whether you were going to do color kits or drive by, you know, drive by um, filling of retail products. And I knew early on, Anthony, that I had to just kind of make a stand uh, being an educator and really protecting the licensing of uh of, of hairstylist. And I knew that if I drew, drove my client to the internet or drove my client to learn how to do her own hair uh, in my absence, how was I going to turn right back around and tell her how much she needed me? And it was a very risky move at the time because a lot of folks were selling color kits. And I do realize, and I want to say to your viewers that uh, you know, everybody had to get in survival mode and do what was best for them based on what, you know, their business was uh, afforded. But for me, I just did not want to go down that road uh, simply because I didn't want to send, you know, send my hairdressing community to the kitchen and become a kitchen beautician. Or mm-hmm. I didn't want to send my hairdressers to the back decks in the front patios or lawns of their guests in the absence of of closing down. I mean, if we really were putting help over highlights, then we really needed to stay true to why we were closing, you know, for the reasons that we were closing. We did have a retail component where we actually uh, did a huge push with our guests and begged them to please buy products for us. And then I took 40% of all profits uh, that were sold online and I uh, divvied it up across the board, uh, straight across the board to everyone that worked for my company, uh, hairstylist or not. So to my receptionist, to uh, the person who cleaned my salon, to the person who works in my warehouse, uh, you know, all across the board, um, I took that money and divided those profits and gave it back to my staff members. Yeah. Uh, so we we did a huge push to help, you know, to that was sort of how we, quote unquote, raised money. Uh, for them, because it wasn't really to me, I had a huge war chest, I was very smart about how I've run my business. Um, uh, you know, we're a 60 year young business. So uh, I, I wanted to help my people, I wanted to take care of the people, the family members that work for me more. And uh, so we did that through retail. But we also, like I said, had a bold move and really did a show your roots campaign. And so we made all kinds of graphics to, and we were showing our own roots and saying, look, we can do it too. Hold on, wait for us, you know, just wait for us. Because I was really concerned about um, my competitor, which is Amazon. And, um, you know, those types of uh, uh, retailing uh, folks that caught on very fast, color companies that caught on very fast mm-hmm. and were going after our customers. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I see brands like uh, L'Oreal's Color and Co. and E Salon and Madison Reed, and the last twelve months they have just they've done extraordinarily well, basically as online color companies. So, um, 
Uh, and yeah, with the professional retail thing, you know, a, a lot of salons sort of, they don't have a shopping cart uh, presence on their website, but you found that that you didn't have that. You did have that, sorry, before COVID or you put it in especially for COVID. No, we had it before, but you also have to realize I'm a manufacturer as well. So, it, uh, you know, I, I know about the online component. I built a brand online and through social media. So for me, we've had that, you know, for, for quite a while. So yes, we had a leg up on many that were scrambling to try to get that online. Um, and I also have a warehouse, which made it very easy for me to ship out every day and, sure. um, you know, all those types of things, whereas others were filling that on the curbside, which I think is yeah. great, you know, buying shampoo and coming on curbside. That's wonderful. But I just couldn't find in my heart to really go against everything that I worked so hard to train and do as to, you know, put professional product of color kits in the hands of an unprofessional person with no license, which was my guest. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that I, I did that. Um, and I, you know, I, I felt like it really set us apart really in the end. Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. Well, you, you've mentioned that you've touched on it a couple of times, uh, Sunlight's Balayage, this uh, product that you have uh, developed and been phenomenally successful with. So uh, tell us about that. Tell us about why, you know, what, wh- why did you wake up one day and think to yourself, I'm going to develop my own product company? I always think that there's, you know, great stories and in, in how people, get this idea and then the the hurdles they have to overcome to turn it into reality. So um, give us some of the background on that. Well, as I said before, I've been an educator for a long time. So I was teaching balayage before I had a product and I was struggling to uh, get the, uh, the, the resources to continue to fill my product. So I was kind of bootlegging, if you really want to know the truth, for my student. I was creating these kits over, you know, Candy's favorite things to paint with. And so at the time, I thought, well, you know what? Um, I'm going to just go to the leading manufacturer and I'm going to ask them to create a balayage uh, product for us because there's all these foil lighteners, but no one had ever really tackled uh, the caboose of a color line, which is the lightener. I mean, lightener is not sexy. You know, lightener is just lightener, right? So for me, I thought, you know, why don't I try to go to them and see if they can create this for the balayage artists? Well, at the time, I was told a big fat no and that, you know, balayage was just simply a trend and it was going to go away. And, you know, and I said, no, it's not. You know, balayage to me is like the little black dress. It's not going anywhere. It's going to shift this industry just like the cap, you know, went away and the foil highlight happened, just like, you know, Vidal Sassoon made the scissors small. Um, you know, the barbering scissors small. And, you know, this is going to be a huge shift in our industry. Uh, And I really believed in it. And so I am from Georgia and our natural resource in Georgia is red Georgia clay. And it made sense to me that kaolin clay, maybe in a lightener, might adhere to hair and stick on hair um, and actually harden on the outside and stay soft in the middle, just like when I was a child and would go down to the lake and step in the clay or the dirt that had been um, dried by the sun. And so I started playing around with it. When I was told no, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself. And at the time, I thought I would just create it for my own salon and that I really had no risk involved. So I took $50,000 of my own money and I literally created Sunlight's Balayage for my own salon. And I thought, you know what, if I fall on my face, I'll use it up in my, in my business and it won't be that big of a deal. And so I worked on it for two years in the research and development, and I wanted to create a Bali box, which was a class in the box. I like to think of myself as an education company with a product, not a product company with education. And so I created this Bali box and I stuck my neck out. I loved the fact that sunlights made sense because it was highlights, sunlights, which, you know, obviously the sun is what you're mimicking in balayage, which is natural childlike hair color. 
Yeah. And now I've um, created Moonlights, which is a foil lightener, the first to market with Kaolin. And when I did it, it was really just kind of in my garage. I really did. I, I stuck the labels on myself. I tied the twist ties around the bags. I put the lids on. I put the scoops in the lightener jars. And I shipped it from my home to people who just sort of believed in my education. And I guess you might say the rest is history. I'm now in 13 countries and we have a huge distribution here in America. And, you know, really, uh, it's quite, I mean, it's just sort of mind blowing to me that I'm seven years into this and now we're just developing products right and left. And it's really been a a wonderful ride. Um, And it's just sort of where, you know, my son and my husband and I, I want to create this for the next generation of my family. Fantastic. So when you say you're now developing products left and right, uh, are you talking about more color products or a a wet line of products? What, What exactly is that? You know, right now I'm working more on toning shampoos and wet line uh, types of things. I already have a scissor line, a brush line, uh, uh, my own blow dryer called the Chaveau. Uh, You know, I've I've been a tool company for a long time because obviously I have tools with balayage, but uh, mostly just wet line products at, at the moment. Um, I don't really have um, a color line in the works uh, simply because, to me, I like to focus on only heroes. Um, You know, I want to focus on creating only hero products, things that I really love that, you know, come and are birthed from a hairdresser, uh, not just from just products in the sky. Uh, That's something that I think causes people to buy into my brand and into my culture is that they know that. I'm, I'm, I'm not about zeros. I'm only about heroes. And um, so that's kind of, it's happened. I know that a lot of people tend to use the word organic a little over organically, <laughs> mm-hmm. but for me, uh, it's just organically happening as the need and the niche of, uh, arises and as it presents itself. Okay, that all makes good sense to me. What what would you say? I've just looked at the time and realised um, I've been sat here intrigued with everything you're saying and realising that we actually have to start wrapping up shortly. Um, and I've still got a ton of questions to ask you. But um, wh- wh- one question I want to ask you is, what's your biggest strength? Organisation, I think, is my biggest strength. I'm extremely organised and it really okay. helps me to run three companies. Um I'm passionate to a fault uh, and giving to a a fault. Uh, But I think being organized is really what has uh, helped me uh, stay on top of what I do more than anything. Okay. What, what, uh, what drives you? Oh my gosh. Making my father and mother proud, uh, making my kids proud. Um, Not money. That's for sure. Anyone that knows me knows I never look at a paycheck. Uh, I just, I, I really, uh, it, what drives me is the last student I taught, you know, and whether or not they, they, they can get it, you know, the light bulbs that I see in my classroom that drives me every time I see a light bulb, it's, 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 it's time well spent. Yeah. I I know your dad is, uh, in his eighties now. Um, do you still talk hair with him? Do you talk business with him? Is he interested in what's happening and the way the business is evolving on a, you know? daily annual basis with all these you know different uh, you know goals that you're kicking personally i speak to my father every single day and there's never a conversation that i have with my father that does not include hair or business as wow. a matter of fact today is his 85th birthday oh so happy God. birthday papa yeah <laughs> fantastic yeah and does he have does he advise you at all uh, to sometimes he advises me a little bit more than I asked for, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's always going to be your dad. <laughs> he's always going to be my dad. He is always going to be my dad, but he's also my biggest cheerleader. He yeah. is my, you know, he is truly my rock in more ways than I could ever state. Um, he is a very wise man. He has a lot of incredible things to say and, you know, he's been around it for his whole life. Um, 
And he's, you know, when I'm down, I know the first call is to my father because I know he's going to lift me up. Uh, but he's never afraid to tell me the truth. And I love that about my dad, uh, you know, is the fact that he 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 can tell me the hard things I need to hear sometimes. And um, those kinds of relationships, to, you know, I don't take for granted. Yeah, yeah, sure. What um, what do you wish that you were better at? Oh, with out question uh, I would say um, anything with uh, that is as it relates to avant-garde type of hair uh, that has never been my wheelhouse um, I feel like I'm a very strong hair cutter I'm a very strong colorist um, I'm a very strong hair finisher as it relates to finishing hair uh, in the consumer market but when it comes to anything um, intricate or, you know, like my friend, Sharon Blaine, I mean, I just like, I put her on a pedestal, you know, I just, I look at her and just in awe of what she can do and how she does what she does. I mean, that's yeah, definitely amazing. my weakness and my yeah. weakness. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, no, I think she's incredible. She used to try and teach me um, how to dress hair. I was a disaster at it. So we we share that weakness. Um, but yeah, she's from the old school when it comes to that. And uh, the finish and the attention to detail is is really something special. And her, her commitment and, you know, ongoing uh, passion uh, for the industry. It's very admirable. Yeah, okay. it is very admirable, for sure. She's one of my dearest friends. Oh, good. That's lovely to hear. I, I often get asked by people, young women in particular, will often say to me that I should interview more women on the podcast and ask them, and I interview a lot of women on the podcast, but they always want me to ask them, how do you balance being a businesswoman, a mother, you know, a homemaker, a wife, um, you know, a manager. I mean, you've got a lot of spinning plates there. And I know that your children are not babies anymore, but you've obviously, you know, gone through all those phases. What, what advice would you give to, you know, young women listening to this that fit that sort of description? I would say surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are in the places that are your weaknesses uh, and be willing to delegate and be willing to let go. Uh, one of the hardest things as a mother and a business owner for me is, you know, having control of every single aspect of our business. Uh, I just try to put it in the hands of trust of people who I trust to take care of those types of things. And I think the last thing that I would say to your listener would be just to give yourself permission to fail, give yourself yeah. permission to fall and give yourself permission to not be perfect all the time. Um, you know, open your vulnerability uh, uh, component in your heart and and let people see you uh, at your best and also at your worst. And when you accept that, you uh, you thrive and you survive. Yeah, good advice. Perfect place to finish. Um, where can people connect with you? on uh social media what what channels do you hang out on well i hang out on instagram and of course facebook and instagram at, at the bali lama and yeah. facebook i'm candy shaw uh obviously um, uh, you can find anything that i'm doing on my website of sunlightsbalayage.com uh, i'm in atlanta uh in my academy here as well so if ever anyone wanted to have some more advanced education uh, I do wonderful two and three day uh, French cutting and balayage classes. And I even bring people to my home and show them my uh, all of my hair world here and, and spend time with them. Um, but they can also just reach out to me through a uh, direct message. Uh, I always answer people and try my best. It's how I, I answered you. Exactly. I, well, I think it's that that you know humility and uh, approachability which is one of your uh, secret weapons and i think it's always a good thing for for people in the industry to to meet and hear people you know that are incredibly successful but work really hard at it and uh, they're still so approachable and they keep their feet on the ground so candy we do need to uh, wrap up have you got any final words for our listeners well i would just say that the beauty industry uh, is such a wonderful wonderful place to be. Uh, I am so proud to be a hairdresser and to call myself a hairdresser and an educator. And, uh, you know, I just think that we are one of the most resilient 
organizations of, of people that are just lovers of our craft. And I just can't imagine my life being anything other than a hairdresser. I'm just really, really proud of that. And I want to thank you for sharing so many amazing messages on your podcast uh, that I've enjoyed listening to from so many folks out there. You know, it's it's not enough to just have followers. It's more important in my book to have believers. And I think it's great to uh, really put your stories out there and let people be heard. And I want to thank you for letting me share my story with you today. Oh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So if you are listening to this podcast with Candy Shaw and have enjoyed it, then please do me a favor and take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on the Apple podcast app. So to wrap up, Candy Shaw, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It is my absolute pleasure. And if you're ever in Atlanta, please come and see me. I will make sure I do next time. Thank you. Thanks, Candy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.